Welcome to the Anchored Hope Podcast. We're so glad that you decided to join us today. Today's series is Different, Part 2, Holy, featuring Michael Davis. Well, last week we started a brand new series called Different. And what we're talking about is we're doing a little bit of a study on the letter that Peter wrote called 1 Peter. And if you don't know history, about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, there was an emperor by the name of Nero. He was the emperor of Rome. And there was a point in time in 64 AD where there was a great fire of Rome. And in that great fire, there was a fire that burned for nine days that burned down two-thirds of Rome. And most everybody thought that this was Nero because just days before that, Nero had gone to the Senate and asked to rebuild Rome. He was huge into architecture. He wanted to rebuild Rome in his image. He wanted to, you know, tear it down and rebuild it however he wanted. And the Senate told him no. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pay for that. And so because he was denied and he didn't take denial very well, many people thought that Nero had actually started the fire. And actually, after six days when the fire uh, uh, died down, it reignited somehow mysteriously. And everybody thought that Nero was behind that too. After all, he had already killed his mother, his first wife, and his second wife. So he wasn't that good of a dude. And so everybody pointed at Nero and said, Nero, did you do this? And he said, no, I'll tell you exactly who did this. And he pointed to the Christians. And so Christians were blamed for this great fire of Rome, and a persecution started that we've never seen the likes of before. And so when this persecution started, Nero would do all kinds of different things. He would capture Christians, he would cover them in animals' clothing, and he would throw them in a cage and let wild dogs tear them limb from limb. He would capture Christians, dip them in hot wax, and then hang them from trees by their arms and light them as human candles for his parties and birthdays. This was a sick individual. And at this point in time, Christians are public enemy number one. They are, they are on the run. Their government is against them. People think that they're terrible people. They're labeled as terrorists because of what they did to Rome. And so Peter is kind of the godfather of the Christian church. Everybody remembers Peter. Peter was that guy 30 years ago. Remember at Pentecost when he spoke and the Spirit came down and all of us were speaking in tongues and we were able to understand each other? Hey, Peter, I remember that guy. He was at the Council of Jerusalem where he stood up for Gentiles and he said that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ with James. Yeah, that guy, the guy that walked with Jesus for three years while he was here on this earth, the guy that saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And so everybody knew Peter. And so at this point in time, as Christians are wondering what to do next, Peter decides to write them a letter. And so he writes a letter to these Christians. And basically, he starts it off with a joke. He says, hello, you exiles. And in the Greek, that word exiles actually means aliens, strangers, weirdos. And so he writes them this letter, and his very first line is, goes, hello, aliens that don't belong here. And kind of the theme of his letter was this. The theme of this entire letter was, while you are visiting earth as God's people, you are called to be different. You Christians are called to be different. You don't belong here. You're not from here. You're a temporary guest. And so he begins this letter and he goes, hello aliens. Don't forget that's what you are. You are called to be different. Your faith calls you to be different. This is not your home. 
And so last week, the question I told you I wanted you to wrestle with as we're in this series, as this, Easter, as this series takes us to Easter, is I want you to wrestle with this question. What makes you different? What is it that makes you different? This is a question that has to be answered. This is a question that the world wants answered. Because many times the world looks at Christians who are supposed to be different. And they go, there's nothing different about you. As a matter of fact, you're more fearful than anybody I know. You're a bigger worrier than I am. You're more judgmental than anybody I know. There's nothing different about you. So let me ask you, as a Christian, as a believer, as a somebody who has put their faith in God, what makes you different? What makes you different from your coworker? What makes you different in your marriage? What makes you different as a parent? What makes you different when we enter into things like a pandemic? What makes you different during an election year? What makes you different than everyone else? And so last week we talked about how our, our faith makes us different. How in hard times, it's our faith, it's our belief that this is not our home and that eternity is waiting for us. It's that belief and it's that faith that should make us different. Because like Peter tells the, the, the people who are reading this letter, he goes, hey, what's the worst that could happen to you? They send you to heaven? That's not too bad. And many of you this week, you, you were challenged by this. I got many text messages and many emails going, hey, thanks a lot for preaching about faith because now my faith is being tested this week. This is what happened to me at work. This is what happened to me in my marriage. This is what happened with my kids. Thanks a lot for preaching on this. But you know what? That makes me laugh. And here's why that makes me laugh. It's not my preaching that brought this faith test into your life. You know why this is a good thing, and this is amazing. I want you to think about this for a minute. You know what? That tells me just so much how much God loves you and God is speaking to us. Because God knew you had that faith test coming up, and it's not my preaching that brought that faith test. It's that faith test that brought on this preaching. Because God so loved you, and he knew what you were going to come up against. He knew that was going to happen at work. He knew that was going to happen in your life. And so he goes, well, i got to send Mike this message because these people are going to need to hear this because it's coming. So be thankful in that. I know you don't want to go through this. I know you don't want to go through this trial, but be thankful because this is proof right here that God is with you. And so Peter goes on, and this is what he says next, just after what we finished last week. He says to them, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Now when he says that, minds that are alert and fully sober, what he means is, he's not talking about sobriety as an alcohol. What he's talking about is he says, I want you to gain control of your emotions. I want you to rein in your thoughts. I know right now you guys are scared. I know right now Nero's out there and people are out there and you're endangered and everything else. I want you to collect your thoughts. I want you to rein it all in and I need you to focus. So I want you to get your minds fully sober. I want you to be alert and I want you to think for a minute. And then he says this. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So again, he says to them, he says, hey, here's what you need to understand. Here, here's what I need you to know. Is I need you to rein your thoughts in. I need you to focus. And remember, I mean, he's already said this. Remember, I want you to set your eyes. I want you to set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. Not here on this earth. Nothing is promised here on this earth. But that will be brought to you when Christ is revealed in his coming. You know, you ever taken your kids to get shots, Right? And do you ever bribe them to get there by getting something afterwards? You know what I mean? 
You're like, look, we got to go get your flu shot. We got to go do this. But look, if you just go and you get through this and you just hang on and you can squeeze daddy's hand, I will go and I will buy you Chick-fil-A afterwards, okay? So look, just squeeze daddy's hand. I know this is going to suck. I know this trial is hard. I want you to just get through this. But afterwards, daddy's going to take you to Chick-fil-A and then we're going to go to Target. And Target's more for me than you, but it's all going to be okay, all right? And it's just like, hold on, just get through this. I know this is going to hurt, but if you get through this, I want you to know good things are coming. That's what Peter is saying to you. Look, rein it in. Get control of your emotions. Understand, I, I, I understand, but you need to rein it in. You need to take a deep breath. You need to get yourself under control. I need you alert during this. And set your minds on what is ahead. And then, this is what he says, he tackles them with a whole new challenge after talking to them about their faith. He says, as obedient children, pause, we don't like that word, do we? Obedience. When's the last time you heard anything on obedience? We don't even talk about children being obedient anymore. Obedience is not something our culture wants to talk about. Obedience is not encouraged obedience is a bad word. Even if I said the word obey, you're like, don't tell me what to do. That's where we are as a culture. Obedience, obeying. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do. And see, we live in a culture that doesn't want to talk about obedience. They want to talk about how you feel. They want to talk about what it is you want to do. And the culture message that we live in today is, look, you're in control. This is your life, and you can do whatever it is you want with it. When it comes to your finances, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to your parents, when it comes to your parenting, when it comes to your gender, when it comes to what you drink and what you drive and what you do, you're in control. It's your life. Do what feels right to you. And that's what the culture says, and that's all fine and dandy. But what you need to understand is as a Christian, you have signed up for a different thing. As a Christian, when you made the decision to follow Christ, you put your faith in Christ. What you were admitting and saying in that time is that, look, I know it's, in my, I know it's my life. I know I can do whatever I want. But I'm choosing to take my life and put it underneath the lordship of Christ. I'm going to take my life, and I know I could do my own thing, and I know I could be the boss. But here's the thing, that hasn't always worked out for me. So instead of me being the boss, instead of me being in charge and me being in control, I know I have that, but I don't think I'm very good at it. So I'm going to submit myself to the lordship of Christ. I'm going to make myself less, and I'm going to depend on him more. you got to understand that as a Christian. If you make the decision to follow Christ... You are no longer in charge. You are no longer in control. You have submitted to Christ. You have said that your way is not the best, that his way is better, and that in your own hands, you don't always handle things best. So what you've made the decision to, decision to do is to obey, is to be obedient, is to give your life to Christ. Another way of saying it is this is that even though it's my life, I've decided the, decided the best way to live my life is to give my life away. And I've said, God, on my own, I'm not enough. God, on my own, it's too many good days and bad days. God, on my own, I make too many mistakes. God, on my own, I'm not that wise. God, on my own, 
I end up having to say sorry too many times. So here you go. I'm giving you my life, and I'm choosing to submit my life to him. I'm choosing to obey. My life is not my own. So then he goes on, and he says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Peter, Peter, Peter draws this line, right? Peter draws this line, and he goes, look, when you decided to follow Christ, when you decided to put your faith in Christ, there was a line that was drawn. And from that point forward, there was your old life, and there was your new life. And he says something pretty bold there. He goes, your old life, you remember that time when you lived in ignorance? Meaning you didn't know any better? He said there was a point in time where you didn't know any better, and so all you knew to do is to react. All you knew to do is just react to whatever was going on and it was emotionally driven and it was emotionally charged and it's just what felt right to you and a lot of times that was an evil desire that you had in your heart and he goes remember those evil desires you remember how much trouble that you got you into you remember the regret that you felt the shame that you felt the conversations you had to have to fix that issue later all the drama that it stirred up for you well anyway that's your old life and this is your new life and he goes don't go back to that old life don't do that anymore you're not that person anymore you know as paul says it so well in the letters that he writes he says i have died to myself my old life is gone, and my new life is in Christ. This is what we celebrate at baptism, right? Going down into the water and being reborn, not in some weird, mysterious way, but signifying and celebrating with my brothers and sisters in Christ that that's who I used to be when I didn't know any better, but now I've made the decision to follow Christ, and now I do know better. And so now I no longer give in to my evil desires that are in my heart, but I make the decision to follow Christ. And Peter goes, as obedient children, do not conform to those evil desires anymore. Because remember how you used to respond when your boss was a jack wagon? Remember how you used to fight with your wife? You remember how you used to fight with your kids? You remember when life got tough, how you used to respond, how you used to push people away? How you used to self-medicate? How you used to find things around you to make yourself feel better? Remember what you used to do with your money? Remember how you used to be okay with debt? You remember how you used to be a selfish person? You remember how you used to get on Facebook and rip people apart and get in that comment section and go to town? That's your old life, and you know better than that now. And those were your evil desires, and you've chosen to leave that life behind. A way of saying it is this. Hey, remember when you did what you wanted but didn't get what you really wanted? <laughs> right? Don't go back to that. Remember when you, you remember when you knew what you wanted and you did what you wanted to inside, but you didn't get what you really wanted? That peace, those relationships, that calm, man, don't go back to that. Don't go back to those things. And then he offers an alternative. He goes, hey, you know, you guys have just made the decision to follow Christ and now you know, you're children of God. You've been adopted into God's family. And so there's a new life that you live now. So don't go back to that old life. I know it's tempting right now with everything going on in the world. But don't go back to that life. Leave those evil desires behind. And then he gives an alternative. And this is what he says next. 
But, meaning, here's something else to do. This is an alternative. Instead of doing that, you could do this. But, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, this is something really cool here. You know, we talked about there was a big difference. The big difference between the Old and the New Testament is because in the New Testament, after Jesus is resurrected, everybody is able to be a follower of Christ. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. And a Gentile means a non-Jew. So everybody else, right? So if you really look and study the scriptures, who is this letter written to? Because some letters in your Bible are written to Jews and some of them are written to Gentiles. Well, Peter writes to both Jews and Gentiles, okay? He writes to all kinds of different places. In some places, there's a very big Jewish community. Um, other places, there's a big Gentile uh, community. So he does something really cool. He puts in an Old Testament Easter egg. Okay? He, 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 quotes, he quotes this Old Testament verse. Remember when, when they said, be holy because I am holy? And so the Jews would pick up on that and go, ah, I remember that verse. I know that verse. That's in the Old Testament. So he leaves an Old Testament Easter egg for the Jews. And to the Gentiles, what he's telling them is, hey, look, I know you guys don't study Old Testament scripture. And this is why we have an Old Testament today. Why when you open your Bible, you have an Old and New Testament. Because the thing that's great about the Old Testament for us as Gentiles and New Covenant people is that it still tells us who God is. Because God has never changed. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. What changes the covenant and the agreement and the relationship we have with Jesus. And so he says to the Jews, hey, that's still, that's still a thing. God is holy. He still is holy. And the call is for you to still be holy. And to the Gentiles, he said, hey, you guys may not have known this or not, but this still is a thing. God is holy. And because God is holy, we also need to be holy as well. Now, holiness is a word that, man, if I asked you your definition of holiness, I don't know what you would say. Um, some of you came in with holy genes this morning, and that's about as far as you go, okay? But the word holiness in the Greek, this is what it means. Pure, set apart, sacred. He says, be pure, be set apart, sacred, because that's who God is. And now you are a child of God. And in light of Christ, Christ adds a whole new thing to that. Because in the Old Testament, holiness was a thing that was kind of like, eh, we don't really know what it is. We've never gotten like a practical version of it. I couldn't really tell you exactly what it looked like. But the thing is, is about Jesus. Now that Jesus has come and walked this earth and been with us and lived on this earth as a man for three years, the thing is, is that we know exactly what holiness is. Holiness is to be like Christ. It's to have a Christ-like character. So the thing is, is what Peter's saying is this, you should be holy in the same way that God is holy. You should be pure. You should be set apart. You should treat yourself and your body and your sexuality and your gender as sacred. And you know what? When it comes to your character, you should be like Christ. So let me ask you a question. Are you holy in all that you do? Are you holy in all that you do? Let me ask you a better question. Because most of you are already saying in your heads, no. I can hear it. Like, right? You're like, no. Let me ask you an even better question. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be holy? Now, this is what I think happens. Where's my thinking stool? I'll be right back.
Okay. This is going to be good. Took a lot of... uh, a lot of looking at the lava lamp to come up with this part, okay? So this is good, all right? <laughs> Drank a little NyQuil, looked at the lava lamp. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what, that's what I should write about. Okay. So do you want to be holy? Most of you, if we went out to coffee this week, you would say, you can't be holy, right? Do you want to be holy? Well, holiness is impossible. Nobody can be perfect. And some of you grew up with bad theology or theology that you kind of picked up and like pasted together like a toddler and made like a weird picture with. And you're like, well, here's the thing, pastor. No one can be holy except for God because nobody can be perfect. Nobody can be pure. Nobody can be uh, set apart. It's impossible to be like Jesus. And I even hear people say it all the time. I hear people say this, this statement, I am a sinner. I am a sinner, which is a very Calvinistic thing for you to say, because a Calvinist would say, I sin in word, thought, and deed. And the idea behind that is this, sin is going to win. That's what a Calvinist would say. Sin is going to win. Sin is going to win. All the time, sin is going to win. And many of you, even if you didn't grow up as a Calvinist, you believe this because you grew up as a Catholic, and what did they tell you to do as a Catholic? Remember, every week you have to come to our special booth and meet with our special priest, and you have to confess your sins, and you need to keep coming back week after week after week because you are a sinner. So remember, come back and just keep on confessing, and you have to do it, and you have to do it this way. Otherwise, you won't be pardoned for your sin. And don't go too long without having a confession because, God forbid, something happens to you between then, and you haven't confessed your sins and aren't pardoned by the priest for it. Ooh, that would be really bad, and you'd go to hell. So keep on coming back because sin is going to win. Here's my problem with that theology. It's incorrect, number one. But the biggest problem with that theology is it's such a small view of God. So you're telling me that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that it was like what, like a one-time thing? That when he died for your sins and told you that you are no longer a sinner, that you are a child of God... That sin is always going to overcome what God could do in your life? Are you telling me that sin is bigger than God? That what Jesus did on the cross didn't defeat sin? That it just put a band-aid on it? That's a very, very small view of God. And it's a very small view of yourself to think that you are always going to be a sinner and you are always going to lose to sin. That when it, comes about, when it comes between you versus sin, sin is always going to win. And you are going to walk this life defeated every day as a sinner. Every day, somebody who has to run to God for forgiveness because you're just going to continually mess things up. Wow, no wonder you're depressed. Sin is going to win? I don't think so. And I think you're lying to yourself. I think you're lying to yourself, and I think even sometimes you're using that as an excuse to do what you want, to listen to those evil desires, and you chalk it up to, well, what's the big deal? Sin is going to win. 
And I can always run back to Jesus, and I can always get forgiven, and we can put a band-aid on it, and then, you know, whatever, I'm probably just going to sin again, because sin is always going to win, because that's what I am. I'm a sinner, and I sin in word, thought, and deed, and I'm a terrible human being. But here's why I think you're lying. I think you're lying to yourself, because you think differently about me. Let me give an example. Now, many of you are going to think to yourselves, he's talking about me. Because I just did that to him this week. Look, I'm not talking about you. Because 90% of you have done this, okay? So, don't feel guilty. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about all of you. So let's all feel guilty together, all right? So here's the thing, man, all right? There will come a point in time where you and I are conversing, okay? And I know, I got tattoos and stuff, and I don't look very pastorly. I'm now wearing floral shirts. So I know it's hard to forget that I'm a pastor sometimes, okay? And in the middle of a conversation, you will drop a curse word. Everyone who's laughing, they've cursed at me, okay? Now we're all laughing because you've all cursed at me. Literally everyone but my father-in-law in the room has cursed at me, all right? Even my mother-in-law. Anyway, um... Thank you. I'm preaching without a script today, as you can see, and so I don't know how it's going to go. You will curse, though. You will drop an A-bomb, an F-bomb, a D-bomb, an S-bomb, an H-bomb, a Y-bomb, a Z-bomb, okay? You'll drop a bomb. You'll curse in front of me, and the, your mouth will drop. I just cursed in front of my pastor. Oh, and then you'll curse again. And you'll say to me, oh, I'm sorry for my language, Pastor. I'm so sorry for my language. Let me ask you something. Why do you feel the need to apologize to me when you curse? When you curse in front of me, you know I've heard that word before, right? Like, I'm a pastor, but I'm not a prude, okay? I watched MTV growing up, all right? Why do you feel the need to apologize to me? Hey, why is it that when we go to a restaurant and you drink on a regular occasion, you don't drink in front of me. Hey, why don't you offer me a drink? <laughs> right? Why is it when I come to your house, you like hide all the paraphernalia? I mean, some of you do. I'll go to the cabinet and help myself, and I'm like, good Lord, what in the, what is in here? You know, why do you hide all that when I come over, you know? Why is it that you change how you talk around me? I've, I've literally been around somebody before, and they've said, they, they've introduced me to their friend, and they're like, hey, just so you know, as you talk, this is my pastor, right? <laughs> it's like you're trying to protect me, you know what I mean? Like, put a bubble around me, like, you know, earmuffs, pastor. We don't want you to hear these things that my friends say, right? But you do that all the time. Like, this happens on a regular occasion, which is why we're all giggling about it, because you know this happens all the time. Or, hey, let me ask you this. When a pastor does have a moral failure, why is it such a big deal? And we've seen a lot of those this year. Why is it that when a pastor has an affair, it's a bigger deal than when your neighbor has an affair? Or when we find out the pastor stole money, or the pastor lied, or the pastor had a moral failure, why is it such a bigger deal when we find out the pastor did it? This is why. 
Because if I was up here and I started using curse words or I started drinking or I started doing some of the things that you don't think are very pastoral, what you would say to me is this. You would say, not you, pastor. You're supposed to be different. Right? Not you, pastor. You're supposed to be different. You don't say those things. You don't go those places. You don't drink those things. You don't smoke those things. You don't find yourself in situations like that. You, not you. You're supposed to be different. I got bad news for you. See, you're being very Old Testament when you say that. See, you're, that's an Old Testament way of thinking. Because in the Old Testament, the priests were the holy people. And only the holy people could go through the curtain into the holy holies and be inside the presence of God. Be around the presence of God. But here's the thing, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil that separated the priest and the holy people was torn in half. And that temple was allowed to be destroyed. And here's the bad news, is that no longer is the priest expected to be the holy person that represents the people. Instead, we are called to be a holy people who are a priesthood of believers. So I got bad news for you. You better start calling yourself pastor before your name because you're in the same boat as me. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, Peter talks about this. He says this. He says, but you are a chosen people. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are chosen. You are priests. You are a holy nation. You are special. And here's the thing, when Jesus died on the cross, you were made pure at that point. You were made sacred because who in the world would send their son to die for you unless they were important, unless they were special, unless they were sacred? Jesus did something for you that made you pure, that made you sacred, that made you set apart. And the thing is is that when you you chose to follow him and you put your faith in him, You adopted that. You brought that in and you said, I am a child of God. And that doesn't mean you're a sinner. That means you're saved. You are no longer a sinner. You are someone who sinned. You sinned. You were a sinner. And you had to keep running back to confessions. And you had to keep running to making sacrifices. And you had to keep running back to be atoned for your sins. But Jesus ended all of that. And now you are a child of God, saved by grace, promised eternity. And you are a priesthood of believers. The thing that screws that up is when you don't treat yourself as sacred, and you don't treat yourself as special, and you don't treat yourself as pure. And that's when we disrespect the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. You're not a sinner. And what Jesus did on the cross... And his spirit that lives in you can give you the power to overcome those evil desires in your heart. The expectation on you is not to be perfect. It's to be holy. There's a big difference between those two things. The expectation is that you would treat yourself as sacred. You would treat yourself as special. And you would do whatever you can in your life to set yourself apart from the rest of the evil world. And so you look at me and go, Pastor, you're different. You don't do those things because in your life, you set yourself apart from those things. Well, why aren't you doing the same? 
Why? Because the expectation is on, that's on me is the same as the expectation that is on you. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, so since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Impartial judge. Meaning, guess what? He's not going to judge me any different because I'm a pastor. He's going to judge you the same way he judges me. And it re- your past experiences, the things that you've been through, he's going to judge us all the same. So since our father, who's a judge, who's going to judge us each impartially, and then he goes on. And he says, live out your time as foreigners here. Live out your time on this earth as aliens. Live out your time on this earth as different. Live out your time on this earth like you don't belong here. Where people look at you and go, you're a weirdo. You do things so differently. You handled this election so differently. You handled this pandemic so differently. You handed, handled that meeting so differently. Man, when you were attacked, when you were pushed in the corner, when you were betrayed, you handled things so differently. You're, you're weird. You're like an alien, man. You are so different than the rest of us. You don't go to those places. You don't do those things. You don't, you don't, buy, you don't go spend your money like that. You do, you're different. People should look at you and we should know without even asking you that there's something different about you. Because you've chosen to live your life that way. Because you've chosen to live your life as set apart from the rest of the world. And you treat your body and your sexuality and your gender and your relationships and your faith as sacred, as special Because there was a sacrifice made for all of it to be possible. And then he says this. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Somebody asked me a great question this week. Why would I fear God? Why in the world would I fear God? God is is my friend. I love God. God is my Father in heaven. You are absolutely right. But here's the thing you also need to understand. When there is one person who holds the decision of your eternal soul in their hands, you had better fear the decision that that person is going to make. Because in the same way that God is your Father in heaven, He is also going to be your judge. And you should fear that when He looks at your life and makes the decision of whether you deserve heaven or hell, that He makes the decision that you deserve heaven. And don't be mistaken about it. When you meet God, he is your father in heaven, but he is also the creator of the universe, and I believe very strongly that when we all meet him, we will be on our knees in fear. So live out your life in reverent fear of whether your father in heaven, who is also your judge, will decide whether you treated your life as holy or not, whether you treated your life as sacred whether you made the right decisions to remain pure. So let's go back to the question. What makes you different? The real question is, is in light of what Jesus has done for you, what do you want to do with that? Do you want to take advantage of that? Do you want to go, big deal, I'm still going to do whatever I want. I mean, when somebody has paid your penalty, paid for your sin, paid the debt that you owe, what do you want to say to that person? 
How do you want to respond? When someone shows you that much love and that much grace and that much mercy, how do you want to respond? Do you want to disrespect that? Do you want to take it for granted? Or do you want to honor it? Do you want to respect it? Do you want to love him back in the way that he has loved you? If that's what you want, then you need to set yourself apart. You need to make decisions in your life that set you apart from the rest of the world. You need to treat yourself as sacred, as pure, as special, as holy. You need to carry yourself with the same character of Christ. And you need to do all you can to not be perfect. We're not talking about being perfect, but to be holy. The band's going to come back up and we're going to sing a song. And this song that we're going to sing, I, I found it this week. We've never sung it before, but it's very, very simple. And it just kind of repeats over and over. This is holy ground. Holy ground. And you know why this is holy ground? This is not holy ground because this is a church or there's a steeple or we're surrounded by stained glass. This is holy ground because you're on it. Because you are holy. Because you are God's children. Because you're special and you're sacred. And you are so special and sacred to God that he sent his son to die for you. He hasn't done that for anything else or anyone else. What is it that you want to do with that? Treat yourself with the value that God has given you. I know you don't always think much of yourself. And you think to yourself, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a screw up. I'm always going to be. But God says different. God says you have value. God says you are holy. God says you are special. Would you treat yourself like that? Would you honor the gift that he's given us? As we sing together, I want you to reflect on this. I want you to hear these words. And if you believe that this morning, I want you to sing this song out. So will you stand with me this morning as we worship God? If you'd like to support Anchored Hope, you can make a donation at anchoredhope.church forward slash give. If you'd like to connect with someone from Anchored Hope, go to anchoredhope.church forward slash high. Thank you for listening and God bless.